welcome to this episode of the award-winning Best of the Left podcast, in which we shall take a look at Israel's politics, which have been upended by the return of Netanyahu as prime minister. He was put in office with the help of extremely far-right factions who have now pushed through reforms to the Israeli Supreme Court that fundamentally undermine their democracy. All this while they were already a farce of a democracy due to the maintenance of an apartheid-like system of differing rules applying to different residents based on ethnicity. You know, classic. Sources today include Ali Velshi from MSNBC, Democracy Now!, Intercepted, and Deconstructed, with additional members-only clips from Democracy Now!, and Intercepted. With all that's going on in the world and here in the United States, it's easy to forget that Israel is coming apart at the seams. Since the end of last year, Israel's internal politics has been upended. An indicted prime minister was returned to office and in a situation echoing American politics, is trying to use his power and influence to remain in power to avoid prosecution for fraud, breach of trust and accepting bribes. He's even changing Israeli laws for reasons that appear to be entirely self-serving. Now, central to what it's looking like, the collapse of Israel's ostensibly democratic system, and I say ostensible because millions of people, Palestinians who live under illegal occupation, are subject to Israeli persecution and prosecution without either its, prosecu- its protections or the right to vote, is that the once fringe anti-democratic ideological and religious movement secured a stunning victory in parliamentary elections. The former so-called government of national unity had included political parties from the right and the left and had the support of a, the tiny majority of Israeli Arabs in the Knesset. But it lost in the last elections. Wasn't a big loss, but in Israel's incredibly fragmented political system, it was enough to replace the fragile coalition government with a far-right populist government, which now holds some of the country's most influential positions. And with that, the thrice-indicted Benjamin Netanyahu returned to power. In a repeat of a sentence that I have uttered several times over the years, Netanyahu's cabinet is the most right-wing and extreme in Israeli history. It's so far right-wing that it makes the Netanyahu of years gone by look moderate by comparison. One minister in his government has boasted that he could take active measures against the LGBTQ community without any repercussions from his base. But don't worry, even he has a limit. He said, quote, I won't stone the gays. Another minister has advocated for expelling disloyal citizens of Israel. So this is the kind of leadership that Israel is dealing with right now. And Benjamin Netanyahu is once again at the helm of it. His return has brought with it an outright assault on what many Israelis believe to be their democracy, even though Israel is, as I've stated before, an apartheid state, not a real democracy, because only some people who live under its control enjoy its protections. And the delineation is whether you're Palestinian or not. However, Many Israeli citizens either live under the illusion of or legitimately hope for democracy. And Netanyahu has undermined that with a judicial overhaul, which essentially gives politicians, those extreme far-right politicians in his government, full control over Supreme Court appointments. It also allows Parliament to override judicial decisions, subverting one of the sole checks on the government's authority. The question is what Netanyahu and his ultranational government plan to do with their newly unfettered power. Safe to assume they'll use it to target the already vulnerable Palestinian population, 
Some Middle East experts say the government could use new laws to expand illegal Israeli settlements or even go as far as annexing the West Bank, which is totally controlling it without offering its residents a vote. And at least that would prove the argument that Israel is actually an apartheid state. This summer, though, Netanyahu already approved plans to expedite construction of thousands of new settlements in the occupied territories. Israeli settlements in the West Bank are deemed illegal under international law, a finding that is notably ignored by both Israel and its greatest military and financial supporter, the United States. Brutal settler attacks on Palestinian villagers have increased, and the additional Israeli military forces that have been sent into the West Bank by Netanyahu are known to turn a blind eye and sometimes even join in on the deadly wave of violence that has now lasted for more than a year and that has reached levels not seen in two decades. So Israel has two problems. An allegedly corrupt prime minister pursuing political means to avoid prosecution and hang on to power and a rapidly deteriorating situation with the Palestinians. So when the White House confirmed last month that Biden will meet with Netanyahu this year, it raised eyebrows. At the time, the White House did not specify when or where the meeting would take place. Former Israeli security officials, politicians, advisors, ambassadors, entrepreneurs, activists, and thinkers have all urged Biden not to meet with Netanyahu until he stops. Ami Dror, an Israeli tech entrepreneur and the leader of the protest movement, said this to President Biden, quote, I urge you not to meet him at this moment, not before he stops the attacks on Israeli democracy. The democratic world is fighting three frontiers. The war that Mr. Trump declared on American democracy, the war that President Putin and his partners declared on Ukraine and the war that Prime Minister Netanyahu and his racist partners declared on Israeli democracy. We, the democracies of the world, must stay united. President Putin, Prime Minister Netanyahu and Mr. Trump should be persona non grata until they stop their attacks, end quote. Says a lot. When Israelis are begging Joe Biden not to use the office of the U.S. presidency to elevate their own prime minister because they fear that doing so would only further encourage Netanyahu's dangerous behavior. This is a very delicate situation for the United States to be in. The U.S. and Israel are allies. America often calls itself Israel's best friend, and U.S. taxpayer funding of Israel makes that claim largely true. But the United States should not be rewarding bad behavior, and a photo op is just that. Guy Matara, how exactly uh, has the legislation that was just passed weakened uh, uh, the court? Uh, because we've heard the, the uh, gutting or weakening, but we haven't heard much about the concrete uh, legislation that was passed. So I think for context, Israel does not have a constitution and it is very uh, weak in terms of legislation generally. And a lot of what we see in the fabric of Israeli law and society is based on precedent. And uh, judicial precedent in Israel sometimes relies on this issue of reasonableness. So a good recent example was that uh, Netanyahu wanted to appoint uh, for Minister of Finance, someone who was just recently convicted for the fir- third time for tax evasion, uh, fraud, and theft. Um, and the Supreme Court basically said, this is extremely unreasonable to put someone like that in charge 
of the Ministry of Finance. Uh, so this is a good example, and again, one of the motivations for um, for this initiative. Uh, there are other reasons for the, the government to push forward with this legislation, but I think these examples kind of show what the court has been doing and what the government does not want it to do uh, in terms of uh, gutting it and suppressing its abilities to act and restrain the government's power. And there has been uh, talk of further so-called reforms uh, that uh, the allies of Netanyahu want to pass. So what are those reforms? It's important to remember that in January, say, said uh, Minister of Justice Yeriv Levine announced a whole package uh, of a judicial overhaul. It was a set of quite a few bills that uh, the government committed to pass within two or three months uh, in the winter. The massive protest movement is what forced the government to kind of narrow down to just one bill at a time. It's something that uh, we here call the salami method, just slicing it to thin little pieces um, of legislation. And this is the first one to pass, but there are many more on the way. Um, some of them are meant to allow Netanyahu to escape his uh, current uh, trial for political corruption. Other measures are meant to allow the government to annex territories and do basically whatever it wants with any kind of supervision from the side of the court. Uh, there are many other pieces of legislation. They all together basically are meant to ensure that the government both can do whatever it wants in this current term and can persecute political rivals and ensure its uh, re-election in the future by disqualifying other political rivals, especially Palestinian citizens, uh, who, whose parties might be disqualified if the judicial overhaul comes through. I want to bring Gideon Levy into this conversation also in Tel Aviv. Uh, talk about um, this piece that you wrote about the militaristic nature of these protests. Explain what you mean. I have all the sympathy uh, toward this protest movement, the biggest ever in Israel. And I can just appreciate all those hundreds of thousands of Israelis who are going to the streets regularly, week after week, day after day, spending a lot of time, energy, sweat, and many times even blood in order to express their protest. But I have also some criticize, some critics about this movement. One, you just mentioned, Amy, the fact that they really totally ignore deliberately the occupation and the apartheid. But not less than this, the structure and the combination of people who lead this, this protest and who are really running it. Finally, it is about the old boys from the army. I don't say they are the only one, by all means not, but they are giving the tone. Generals who had the state, and now, as we say in Hebrew, and now all of a sudden the state is being taken from them by the right-wingers, and they go to protest. It is very problematic if figures like heads of the Shabak of the secret services of Israel, who are quite well known, at least to your viewers, Amy, in its br brutal methods of blackmailing people and, and doing all kinds of anti-democratic actions in the West Bank, including kidnapping people without any uh, supervision, uh, legal supervision. So those are the people who speak about democracy, 
Those are part of the leadership of this protest movement. Those are the heroes of this movement. I have a problem with this. You know, generals and head of secret services cannot teach anyone anything about democracy. They should learn it by themselves before they teach others. And uh, could you uh, comment also, uh, as you, you have in some, in some of your writings, about the irony of talking about preserving democracy while both sides in this battle continue to uh, uh, assume and expect that the, uh, the oppression of the Palestinians will continue? You can compare it to uh, South Africa, apartheid South Africa. Imagine yourself a struggle among the white community in South Africa about democracy for the white ones. It is a struggle over democracy. And by the way, they had democracy. They had elections. They had quite free press in a way. They had democracy. But it was a democracy only to a very small part of the population of South Africa. The democracy that we are now struggling over is a democracy only for the Jewish citizens of Israel and partially for the Palestinian citizens of Israel. What about five million people who live under the control of the same institutions? who have no civil rights whatsoever, who don't even possess a citizenship of any country in the world. How can you speak about democracy and ignore this? What kind of democracy can exist in an apartheid state? I mean, those things, I understand the desire, the ambition to try to recruit as many people as possible to this protest, which is a just protest. But the way they ignore the real dark side of Israel is for me unacceptable and unbearable. Benjamin Netanyahu came to power, returned to power on the back of a very extreme coalition in the past few years. Can you tell us a bit about the nature of this coalition and how its motivations for helping push through these revisions to Israel's judiciary? Yeah, so, I mean, Netanyahu has basically been in power for over a decade, I believe like 12, 13 years now, and then there was a lull in which he wasn't for about a year. And when he returned to power, he basically had already been charged and un un under on trial for corruption in several cases. And that basically caused a split in the right in Israel um, between uh, various members of his own party who split off and other members who decided they're not going to work with him anymore as a result of him being on trial. They believed he shouldn't be uh, serving as prime minister, even though it's technically legal for him to do so. So that split on the right created uh, fissures in which Netanyahu basically couldn't uh, become, uh, couldn't come back to power and uh, form a majority coalition without turning to far right parties. So the two parties that are on the far right, the settler nationalist religious far right that came into power um, as a result of Netanyahu deciding to work with them. Uh, the religious Zionist party is one of them is headed by Bezalel Smotrich, who is now the finance minister and a minister in the defense ministry which has a lot of ramifications that we can get into later. Um, and Itamar Ben-Gvir, who runs the Jewish Power Party, which is essentially a racist Mayor Kahana uh, party. Um, so these two parties um, have a lot of power. They're both senior ministers in government. 
Um, and ironically, the person who's been leading the judicial overhaul is actually somebody in Netanyahu's Likud party, and his name is Yariv Levine. He's the minister of justice. He is also a pro-settlement annexationist type. He's talked about uh, wanting to annex the West Bank for quite a long time and how the Supreme Court uh, gets in the way of doing that. So they all kind of share the same agenda on that level. But the person who's actually been leading this and came out right after they were elected at the end of December of 2022, he came out and said, okay, we're going through with this judicial reform. It's going to start. It's going to look like this. And the minute that happened, protests started to erupt. So that's kind of how it started. What What is the actual uh, agenda here? I mean, there, you know, there's a lot of analysis suggesting, oh, this has to do with uh, with some of the examples that you're mentioning, that there there are corruption cases and other cases against Netanyahu. There was the uh, the blocking of of an appointment of someone because of the the past convictions. But what I mean, from your analysis, Megav, what what is the What's the actual agenda? What do they what do they really want to do uh, by passing this? Uh, they want to annex the West Bank to Israel. Uh, I believe that that's they want to basically I mean, there's other elements involved. The religious parties want to, for example, um, you know, formalize into law that they will be exempt from military conscription because their communities uh, study uh, Torah and Jewish law instead of um, going into the army. So there's different interests for different groups. But what kind of ties them all together and what has kind of become a status quo consensus in Israel, uh, for better and worse, is that Israel holds control of the West Bank and that it needs to legalize that and formalize that control. Uh, because the settlers specifically in the settler movement have had certain blows um, to their aspirations over the years. So there was the Oslo Accords, which was one of the major first ones. There was the withdrawal from the Gaza Strip in 2005. And there have been Supreme Court decisions, uh, not many, but some that have obstructed and made it more difficult for Israel to continue to settle in the West Bank. For example, in 1979, the Supreme Court ruled that Israel cannot take over private Palestinian land when it can be proven that it's private property of Palestinians um, simply for the purpose of replacing it with Jewish uh, inhabitants. It can be for security reasons. It can be for other reasons. So that, for example, was a Supreme Court decision that the settlers find to be, you know, a big wrench in their plans. It, and if you look at the people who are leading the judicial overhaul plan, um, the hardliners in the government, uh, most of them, except for Yariv Levine, live in settlements and are settlers, and some of them are hardcore settlers. Um, so I would say that that is definitely the common denominator here. They don't want the court getting in the way of their plans to continue to create this greater Israel. So there have been these protests against this judiciary reform for a very, very long time now, several months consecutively. And this week we saw protests around the passage of the bill, which were even quite uh, violent or, uh, you know, escalating, it seems like, in the face of this very determined effort by the Netanyahu government. Can you tell us a bit about the motivations and the you know, the underlying drive of the protesters? Because clearly there's a divide in Israel society between secular and uh, more religious Israelis. How does that manifest, and particularly over this issue mentioned of annexing the West Bank? I mean, so... To understand what the protest movement looks like, it's hundreds of thousands of people, but it's a fairly homogenous group, not politically, but socioeconomically and also ethnically as far as them being like from the Ashkenazi elite, which is Jews of European descent versus Mizrahi Jews who are from North Africa and the Arab world. So 
Uh, if you look at the people who are going out to protest, these are people from the center of Israel mostly, even though there are protests across the country. I don't want to undermine that. Um, but they have served in elite combat units. They are the leading high tech company leaders, uh, you know, doctors. I mean, these are from like the very, very high levels of Israeli society. And they feel like they're their contract that they have with the state to have a liberal democracy as they see it is being uh, broken um, and that settlers and religious nationalists are taking over what is otherwise a great country uh, that does wonderful things. So they feel very betrayed and they've also risked their lives in several wars. Their kids risked lives in uh, wars. And all of a sudden they're supposed to be listening to people who didn't serve in the army because they're either uh, too dangerous or too religious or whatever. And so they're extremely resentful. Uh, so they've kind of come out in uh, very, very high numbers. I think this is unprecedented um, in Israel. Uh, and also the consistency. Uh, you've had like pretty much every week for six months, 100,000 people coming out. And they've they've done it not just in Tel Aviv and Jerusalem, but also in North and South as well. Uh, but, you know, it's also important to point out who's not coming out to the protests, which is what I alluded to before, which are the Palestinian citizens of Israel are not there. Um, Jews of other ethnicity, whether it's Ethiopian Jews or Jews of Arab descent, are mostly not there. Um, so it's, it's a very specific kind of movement. And you could see it as a secular religious divide on some level. Uh, but there are religious people who come out, uh, and there are also right-wing people who are coming out. And I mean, one of the leaders or the faces of the protest movement is a former defense minister and chief of staff, uh, Bogi Yalon, who oversaw, you know, many operations in Gaza and is, you know, very much on the right. Um, so, you know, it's definitely not a right-left divide as far as the protest movement. Um, it's much more like a liberal, liberal urban, I think, more cosmopolitan divide uh, versus the more conservative right wing in Israel. I interviewed uh, Democratic Congressman Brad Sherman uh, this week about this question. He's a kind of very strong ally of, of APAC and a relentless defender of the Israeli government, though he is critical of this this current you know rightward shift of the Israeli government. And he made a point that a lot of others made, and it goes to what you were just saying, that he didn't really want to talk about necessarily the reality of the current situation, but rather the future potential of a better situation in the future. And as long as there was some hope for a better future, he seemed to be arguing, then therefore, you can't call it, say, an apartheid state now, because an apartheid state to him is a static situation where you have a recognized government within a certain uh, geographical boundary that treats people within its borders differently based on their race or ethnicity. And what, what he and others will argue is, well, okay, yes, that is practically de facto what's been happening for 75 years, but one day it might not be happening. And so, therefore, as long as one day it might not be happening, all we're talking about is a temporary uh, situation. Well, the, the resolution goes beyond just condemning the racist part, and it adds apartheid. How do you sort out, in your mind, whether or not it's an apartheid state, given the fact that people well, who live under the, that the every, laws are that virtually every well, this is a temporary, albeit long-lived situation. We need a two-state solution. Uh, you know. There's the Czech Republic, there's Slovakia. 
if you're a Slovak, you're not a citizen of the Czech Republic. If you're Czech, you're not a citizen of Slovakia. They decided to create two separate states. It doesn't mean that Czechs hate Slovaks. It doesn't mean Slovaks hate Czechs. It just means that uh, they want two separate countries. Uh, Israel wants two separate countries. So is the possibility that a two-state solution could emerge the only thing that prevents you from calling the current situation no, I would say No, I would say that... Uh, if Israel were to say that we intend to permanently rule millions of Palestinians, we don't want them to have a state, and we're going to deny them citizenship rights, and I would say that's two levels of citizenship for people who are, because of Israel, trying to live, uh, you know, living, uh, you know, it's uh, the... Uh, uh, Israel is on the way, hopefully, to a two-state solution. What do you respond to that that way of kind of framing this? Um, it's not. It's. I guess it's not shocking that Congressman Sherman takes that approach. I think that is a. I think that's a pretty absurd thing for a sitting member of Congress to say. To say that well one day maybe it would be different so we shouldn't talk about what it is now um is um it's honestly a hard argument to even begin to wrap your head around <laughs> uh you know the situation now is what we have to deal with we're not dealing in what could possibly be one day in someone's dreams of what israel might one day become we're dealing with the reality on the ground right now which is decades of occupation, decades of apartheid, which again, I cannot stress enough, the broad international human rights consensus is that this is an apartheid state. And even Israeli human rights groups have said it's an apartheid state. That's the reality. And what that means is that right now, today, there are millions of Palestinians who are subject to brutal violence that's being funded by Congress. And I think that's the key point here is that this isn't, this isn't just someone like Congressman Sherman, for example, just opining on a situation that he has no role in. He is a duly elected member of Congress, and Congress has a unique role to play here. They control the purse strings of our government, and our government is sending $3.8 billion every single year to fund this apartheid. And so whatever someone hopes the situation might be in the future, the reality is that we have to name what's happening right now accurately because our government is the one paying for it. And it will never change. It will never get better if we don't do something about that. And it's particularly rich to hear that from someone like an APAC funded and affiliated congressman like Brad Sherman, because the policies he pushes for only serve to entrench the current situation. So if actually he wants to make it better and change it, what he should be doing is working right now to hold the Israeli government accountable to create a different situation. You know, he, he also made the argument, and you hear this a lot from, uh, from people in his camp, that says, well, there are Arab citizens of Israel uh, who do share in some citizenship rights. And so therefore, it, it's inaccurate to say that this is, you know, quote unquote, racist. And he also made the point that I said, well, you know, if you're Palestinian living in, in Israel and you're married to somebody who lives in the occupied territories, uh, you can't, your spouse can't even live with you. Like you, so you have thousands of marriages that just that are separated by this, 
this wall, which feels like apartheid and feels like unequal rights. And he said, well, that actually would apply to a Jewish uh, Israeli citizen. Although e- e- even, even citizens of Israel who are Palestinian aren't allowed, for instance, to marry a Palestinian who lives in the West Bank and have them move and live with them. Isn't like they li- literally have different rights based on their ethnicity. Well, it's not. I think that would apply to a Jewish citizen who married a Palestinian from the West Bank as well. Uh, I'd have to examine that, uh, and I think every country has a flaw. It's of all the countries who have been under violent attack from another country, area, or ethnicity, Israel has had the most benign. Um, reaction. You cannot point to anywhere else in the world where a country is under violent attack and uh, is embracing its enemy while being attacked. I mean, try to find a Ukrainian uh, saying something nice about Russia today. So what's, I'm sure you hear this, the, the former version of this ar- argument a lot. I'm curious to get your read on it. I'm not sure if you've heard this, this latter one, though. Yeah, you know, I think this is a very common argument, right? We, we saw this from also people like uh, Congressman Richie Torres on Twitter the other day. We see it, we saw it on the House floor when they were debating this absurd um, wink, wink, we swear Israel isn't an apartheid state, wink, wink resolution the other night. Uh, people constantly say this. Well, how could Israel be a racist state when, how could it be an apartheid state when there are non-Jewish citizens of Israel who have some rights. And look, there are even people in the Knesset who aren't Jewish Israelis. I mean, I think any progressive worth their salt could listen to that argument and say, that's absurd. And that does not mean that there is not systematic racism going on. Uh, The truth of the matter is the Israeli government has over 65 different discriminatory laws against Palestinians who are citizens of Israel. At the end of the day, when you zoom out, the reason this is a system of apartheid is because there is one government, Israel, that rules over all people that live between the Mediterranean Sea and the Jordan River. And that includes Palestinian citizens of Israel, and it includes Palestinians living under illegal military occupation by the Israeli government. The Israeli government controls all of their lives, and those Palestinians are subject to different levels of rights based on where they live, and Jewish Israeli citizens are the people with the most rights. That is pure systematic discrimination based on ethnicity and religion and identity, and that's simply put apartheid. Right now, as as we speak, there's also uh, once again um, attacks happening, uh, settlers uh, attacking Palestinians. You also had the incursion once again into Janine um, in early uh, July, um, and I've you know I've been hearing from a lot of Palestinians with different perspectives on this. There are there are some people who take a very hard line and say, "Let it all burn. Let Netanyahu 
uh, do this, and it'll finally expose that state for what it actually is. And then you have other people who are sort of pointing out what they perceive as uh, the hypocrisy of the intensity of the protests. Uh, Mariam Barghouti, for instance, the senior correspondent in Palestine for uh, Mondo Weiss, tweeted on Tuesday, Israelis are upset that they're being arrested, sprayed with skunk water, beaten for protesting against dictatorship laws. The Israeli protesters, soldiers, and armed forces beat us, shot us, sprayed our homes, bodies, killed us for protesting ethnic cleansing. What's what's your sense of the voices coming from uh, from Palestine and Palestinians uh, criticizing these protests along the lines that I just mentioned? Yeah, I mean, even if you don't go as far as the West Bank, if you just look at, at Palestinian citizens of Israel and why they aren't showing up in big numbers, I mean, some of their leaders are calling them to come out. It's not that they're boycotting it per se, but for very similar reasons, which is that where were all these Jewish Israelis when Palestinians were shot in uh, 2000, just before the second Intifada start, Palestinian citizens were shot. Where were they when there were decisions made by the Supreme Court to prioritize Jewish land rights over Palestinian land rights? Again, I'm talking about within Israel where everybody is a citizen. Um, so it's in that sense, it's similar. It's the Palestinians who live in the West Bank. I mean, they've been living under occupation. They can't vote for the people who control their lives. Um, and you know, for them, the situation is so bad. And actually, even before this government came into power, uh, the, the situation was uh, getting already very bad. And uh, the former defense minister uh, outlawed six uh, Palestinian civil society organizations as terrorist organizations. I mean, all these things were happening even before this government came in. And then when this government started, it got even worse. And the trigger has been extremely, extremely, you know, uh, hot. I mean, there's been more Palestinians killed in the last six months and last year than I think since the second Intifada. It's basically a consensus that if a, if a Palestinian throws a stone at a soldier, he should be shot at and, and they are being shot at in great numbers. Um, and this is something that the protest movement isn't addressing almost at all, except for the tiny minority, uh, which is the anti-apartheid, anti-occupation bloc, which is really a tiny minority. Uh, it's very important that they're there. Uh, but for Palestinians in the West Bank, some of this judicial overhaul stuff, as as extreme as it as it could be as far as the annexationist agenda, it doesn't change the reality on the ground day to day. That continues apace regardless. And Israel, you know, has found many ways to kind of legalize what is illegal and to de facto create uh, realities on the ground that are uh, extremely detrimental anyway. Um, so, you know, for them, the situation kind of day to day is so bad already. Um, and, and again, like, you know, some of the Israelis that are protesting now and are getting skunk water or are getting police brutality, I mean, they're getting like the tiniest, tiniest taste of what Palestinians get on a daily basis. It's also important to remember that Israelis have the freedom and the right to protest, whereas Palestinians in the West Bank don't like they literally don't have a right to protest. Um, so these are things that are not, you know, coming through uh, clearly enough inside Israel. And um, as impressive and important as the protest movement is, they're somehow they compartmentalize these issues. I mean, even if you stop an Israeli uh, protesting and tell him what, ask him what he thinks about the occupation and the settlements, he'll he'll say, yeah, it's horrible, it's horrible, it's horrible. But I'm fighting this fight um, right now, and this is the the fight that I need to fight. So, I mean, that's that's the unfortunate reality of it. You mentioned that the judiciary has been, at least to some degree, an impediment to this annexationist idea held by the, the right in Israel over the West Bank. With the judiciary out of the way and 
with the annexation theoretically going forward in the future. What is the vision that uh, they have for how the West Bank will be governed and controlled? And would it include permanent legal control of the Palestinians? Or is the long-term vision to get Palestinians out of there uh, by some means, slowly or quickly? How do they actually see the idea of Israel controlling the West Bank in the long term? It depends who you mean by they, um, and it depends who you ask. Um, certain political parties like the um, religious Zionist party headed by Smotrich, he is a radical hilltop youth type, and he does have a, a clear platform of either uh, taking over all of the West Bank, areas A, B, and C, um, annexing it, and then either those Palestinians have to kind of give in and be secondhand citizens, I mean, not citizens, be subjects of Israeli rule, or leave or be killed. I mean, that's basically what his platform says. Um, and that's kind of, I think, the most extreme version of it. And if you speak to certain radical settlers, they'll say, like, I realize Palestinians are here and they don't want to leave. And that's why I'm fighting with them to the bitter end, because they want the same thing that I want. They want to stay here. Um, so you have, you know, that. And then you have uh, more moderate settlers who they'll tell you different things. They'll say that uh, based on the Oslo Accords, Area C, which is 60% of the West Bank under full Israeli control, that should remain under part of an Israeli state. But A and B, which is where most of the urban centers are, Ramallah and Nablus, those places can become part of a Palestinian autonomous entity of some sort. Um, you know, so they'll tell you that, or they'll come up with different ways, or they'll say, um, you know, Areas A and B can be a, maybe a state. I don't know how that would work. And then if you ask them about Gaza, that's a whole other story. I don't know how that they think that would work. I think most of them keep Gaza out as if it's just like this separate entity that will somehow disappear if we ignore it. But I mean, so it really depends on 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 who you ask. And there are a lot of nuances between uh, the different elements of the right. Um, but and you know, and, and Likud, you know, the Likud party headed by Netanyahu. It, it, you know, he, he basically threatened annexation in 2020 and then went back on it because of the Abraham Accords. But if you look on the ground today, um, you know, and also if you look at his promises when he formed this government, he basically said, uh, we have uh, the right to determination, self-determination across the entire land and we're going to settle it as much as we want. Um, and I think basically the difference on the right today is between, it's not, you know, it, if we say that most of the West Bank will be under Israeli control, the question is whether Palestinians will be able to be citizens or not. Um, and some think that they could be, and, and it would be like some kind of, you know, the settlers will tell you like, yeah, they could become citizens as long as they kind of respect that it's a Jewish country. There's a Jewish anthem. Um, they're, they're a minority here. Like some of them will say that, but I think in reality, you know, obviously if you look at what happens inside 1948 Israel today, that's not really going to be the case. by setting up the context that this is 2023 in the aftermath of the legacy human rights organizations, Israeli human rights organizations, UN committees, UN agencies, as well as multiple scholars and independent investigations have all concluded that Israel oversees an apartheid regime. This is also in a context where since the collapse of the peace process in 2000, Israel has made clear that there will be no Palestinian state 
there will be no such thing as binationalism, that they will in, it, it, uh, catalyze and enhance their takeover of Palestinian lands and their removal. They, will, they have shifted from occupation to warfare. This is a completely different universe than the one existed in 2000. And yet the rhetoric and the feedback surrounding Isaac Herzog's uh, invitation and speech is one that completely ignores all of that. So it's important to emphasize that this effort within Congress, specifically among a mainstream democratic um, uh, element, is meant to normalize apartheid. It's not just saying that they want to defend Israel. They are saying that if this is in fact apartheid, as all of these luminaries and experts have concluded, then in this case, it's okay, it should be an exception, and it should be exemplary for others to follow. And so I applaud the progressive members of Congress who are skipping this address. I encourage other members of Congress to do the same and continue, continue to build the momentum amongst a progressive base that sees Palestine squarely within a social justice agenda. This is already manifest in social justice movements, such as Black Palestinian transnational solidarity that has centered, that this is a joint struggle that has endorsed BDS and that in fact catapulted many of these progressive Democrats into office. This is also evident amongst the Democrats themselves. Not only has Israel become a bipartisan issue, but for the first time ever, more Palestinian, more Amer Democrats sympathize with Palestinians than they do with Israelis, according to a 2023 Gallup poll. Continue to build that momentum. Resist this movement to normalize apartheid. What the members of Congress are doing with the invitation, what they did in response to Representative Jayapal's very accurate statements that Israel is a racist state is uh, akin to gaslighting, for lack of a better word, but really is normalization that is responding to the fact that they have lost the battle on the grassroots level and are trying to stem from the top down what they couldn't defeat from the bottom up. And we see this not only in this normalization, but we also see it in the passage of anti-BDS resolutions, as well as the adoption of the Israel Holocaust Remembrance Alliance definition that wants to equate criticism of Israel with anti-Semitism. Nora, I wanted to play the clip you were just referring to, to the Progressive Caucus chair, Congressmember Pramila Jayapal, who made headlines this weekend after she called Israel a racist state while speaking at the Netroots Nation conference in Chicago Saturday. I want you to know that we have been fighting to make it clear that Israel is a racist state, that the Palestinian people deserve self-determination and autonomy, that the dream, that the dream of a two-state solution is slipping away from us. After facing criticism, Congressmember Jayapal later clarified her comments, writing, quote, I do not believe the idea of Israel as a nation is racist. I do, however, believe that Netanyahu's extreme right-wing government has engaged in discriminatory and outright racist policies, and that there are extreme racists driving that policy within the leadership of the current government. We know that the status quo is unacceptable, untenable, and unjust, Pramila Jayapal said. Your response to that, Nora Arakat? One, I want to point out that nothing that she said was controversial. If, if uh, Representative Jayapal is wrong, then so are all the experts and the advocates that study this issue and that apply it across the globe. So the attack on her is actually a bullying and harassment attack that is meant to scare everyone else from even having a conversation and acknowledging this reality on the ground. And 
most importantly, taking responsibility for it. The United States is not just a bystander here. The United States is complicit and a pillar of Israeli apartheid in its provision on unequivocal financial, diplomatic, and military support that, but for that support, Israel could not sustain this regime, which is not surprising, which is not surprising at all, because the U.S. was the last pillar to fall, the last domino to fall in sustaining apartheid in South Africa, where it had to fall in line with everyone else. But during apartheid South Africa and the international campaign against it during that regime's tenure, the United States issued the most vetoes within the Security Council to protect apartheid there, just um, to protect apartheid in Namibia and South Africa. And here we're seeing a similar pattern. As to the way that Representative Jayapal uh, amended her statement, note that she didn't walk it back. She didn't say that Israel is a racist state. She wanted to make a distinction between Israeli people and the Israeli government. But what we need to understand here, and this is important for the audience to know, that she used the term Israeli nation. And there is no such thing as an Israeli national within Israel's law. And this is the crux of the matter. Israel bifurcates Jewish nationality from Israeli citizens so that it can flow all of the possessory rights to land, to employment, to housing, to the right to life through Jewish nationality in a way that it's extraterritorialized. So that a pubescent Jewish teen who doesn't even know where Israel is on the map ostensibly has more claims than a Palestinian grandma who is 80 years old, who was born before the state of Israel was established in 1948, has to those rights. Under any situation, we would decry the system as being discriminatory, contravening liberal norms of democracy. But in this situation, the international community, specifically the United States and Western governments, want to insist that this exception is acceptable and exemplary. And what I want to emphasize is that it actually is not just harmful to Palestinians as evidenced by the systematic killing of Palestinians, the removal and the harm inflicted upon them, but that these ideas are not contained just to Israel-Palestine, but in fact are exported. These ideas of what sovereignty should look like are exported across the world. We see it embodied by the Hindutva movement in India and its reigning government. We also see it embodied even um, in the United States by European supremacists such as Richard Spencer, who says that he envisions that the future of European sovereignty should be modeled upon Israel's model of sovereignty. These ideas are dangerous. And it's not that we want to make an exception here. We want to actually make it clear that there should be no situation where states are not states that belong to everybody who is there and rather than to a nationality that exists extraterritorially. Your book has just come out. Uh, what do you mean by the term the Palestine Laboratory? Thanks so much for having me on, Amy. What I mean by that is that the occupation of Palestine by Israel is now the longest occupation in modern times, 56 years and counting. There's obviously been an occupation of sorts since 1948, but particularly since 1967. And during those years, what Israel has done very successfully from its perspective is find various tools and technologies to maintain and control Palestinians. And what they've done during that time, what Israel's done, is increasingly export those tools and technologies, but also those methods, those so-called counterinsurgency methods. So what I look at in the book 
both being on the ground in Palestine for many years and also through declassified documents and various interviews across the world, is that you find in over 130 countries across the globe in the last decades, Israel has sold forms of anything from spyware, so-called smart walls, facial recognition tools, a range of tools of occupation and repression that have initially been tested in Palestine on Palestinians. So, in other words, what I'm saying is that the occupation of Palestine is not staying there. It's not a conflict that remains geographically based just in Palestine. It's become so-called global Palestine. How would you describe politicide, a term you use? Politicide, I think, was a term that was coined by Burrell Kimmeling, who is now uh, the late amazing academic. And he was talking really about the concept of a desire within many in the Israeli elite to find ways to destroy Palestinians, That not, not necessarily just through killing them, but also through extinguishing their political identity, their political self-determination. And... When looking at it from the outside, one could argue that in some ways Palestinian resistance lives on. Your last segment talked about that very strongly. Palestinians mostly have not left Palestine. They remain there. But certainly from the current Israeli government, and I would argue for decades, there has been a sense that there's a way to crush Palestinian aspirations, their views, their political reality, their future, their horizon. And by doing so, Israel has increasingly marketed that to a global audience, including in its whole identity as an ethno-nationalist state. It's arguably the most successful ethno-nationalist state in the world, a Jewish supremacist state. And growing numbers of nations around the world from India and others look to Israel with admiration and inspiration. We just covered uh, Modi and the lavish reception he got by the president of the United States, mm. Biden, with the state dinner last night, the joint session of Congress. Talk about a little more about how India looks to Israel. Look, what India is doing under Modi, of course, is not solely because of Israel. But traditionally, Israel and India were not particularly good friends. But in the last 10 years or so since Modi took power in 2014, there's been a real ideological alignment. But the relationship is really twofold. One, it's a defence relationship. So India buys huge amounts of technology, defence equipment, spyware. I interview a number of people in my book, um, individuals in India, um, lawyers, others, who are spied on by Israeli spyware, particularly Pegasus by NSO Group. But also there's an ideological alignment, a belief that many Indian officials in the Hindu fundamentalist government there are openly talking about admiration for what Israel is doing in the West Bank and wanting to do something similar in Kashmir. And what I mean by that is they say that two reasons. One, because Israel gets away with it, no one's stopping it. There's a complete state of impunity that Israel has globally really. But secondly, this idea of bringing in, according to India's view, um, huge numbers of Hindus to Muslim-majority Kashmir to settle that territory, to build so-called settlements akin to what Israel is doing in the West Bank. And I think there's a, a really disturbing ideological alignment. I would actually make the comparison between Israel and India today to Israel and apartheid South Africa back in the day nations that were very, very close ideologically and got inspiration from each other in the belief in Israel's case, of course, being a Jewish supremacist state and India's case being increasingly a Hindu fundamentalist state. And that, to me, is something that should concern people, including the US president. 
So, Anthony, you talk about a Jewish supremacist state. I'm wondering if you could talk about your own background, something that you take on in this last piece you wrote. Um, mm. Being Jewish and critical of Israel can make you an outcast, I should know. And talk about your family, your grandparents, your great-grandparents, those who died in Auschwitz, those who didn't survive the Holocaust. Most of my family, sadly, Amy, like most Jews who lived in Europe, perished in the Holocaust, including Auschwitz. And the ones who got out and escaped Europe, particularly in 1939, just before the war started, escaped to wherever they were given a visa, Australia, Canada, the US, elsewhere. And the ones who came to Australia, when I was growing up, I was born in the mid-70s in Melbourne. Israel was not the centre of their lives, but Israel was seen as a safe haven. For those who don't know, as a Jew, I can go to Israel tomorrow, and within a few months, I can almost certainly be a Jewish citizen if I can prove that I'm Jewish. And I think for many Jews, including my family, there was a real reluctance and, in fact, a hostility to any kind of Palestinian reality, Palestinian story, even to meet Palestinians. I mean, as a young Jew, I never met Palestinians. And I think there is a change going on. But certainly when I started writing about this issue around 20 years ago, I wrote a, a book in 2006 called My Israel Question, where there were attempts by the Israel lobby in Australia to censor the book. There was attempts to pulp the book. There was condemnations of me in Parliament. I mean, it was ridiculous. The book became a bestseller thanks to all that ridiculous controversy. But over that time, my parents, um, both of whom lost most of their Jewish friends because it was the sins of the son. I was being critical of Israel. I was trying to humanize Palestinians. Now, I'm not the only Jew, of course, who was saying this, and I'm really encouraged in the last years. In Australia, the US and other Western countries are growing almost like a Jewish insurgency against particularly in an older generation of Jews who doesn't want to humanize Palestinians and somehow believes that Jewish identity should be tied to Jewish supremacy. And so for me personally, I don't claim to be a victim. That story that you referenced at the beginning sort of gives a bit of a potted history of my life, but also explains that one does pay a price for it. Um, one does pay a price as a Jewish person. I'm a secular anti-Zionist Jew today. But I feel often that there is a real moral collapse in much of the Jewish diaspora in the last decades. It is changing, but not nearly fast enough. We've just heard clips today, starting with Ali Velshi arguing that the U.S. shouldn't be inviting Netanyahu for photo ops while he's actively undermining democracy in Israel. Democracy Now! looked at the Israeli Supreme Court reforms and the protests supporting democracy in that country. Intercepted discussed how the right is consolidating power in Israel and the impacts of that shift. Deconstructed tried to wrap their minds around the pretzel logic of refusing to call Israel an apartheid state because maybe at some point in the future they won't be. Intercepted looked at the division in the protests of the Supreme Court issue and the Palestine issue, as well as visions for the West Bank. Democracy Now! discussed the arguments around labeling Israel an apartheid state, and Democracy Now! also discussed the technological side of Israeli occupation. That's what everybody heard, but members also heard two additional bonus clips, the first from Democracy Now! continuing the discussion about Israeli technology being exported to the rest of the world, 
and you see this um, almost um, Israeli border industrial complex exported across the US-Mexico border, for example. There are massive amounts of Israeli surveillance towers made by Elbert, which is Israel's leading defence company, uh, dotted across the border. It's a key part of the US arsenal across its border with Mexico. And why was that company chosen by the US? Because, of course, it was tested first in Palestine. And Intercepted looked at the importance of the continued support of the US to the Israeli far right. They all agree that the most, the biggest threat right now is A, national unity as a result of what's happening, but B, uh, the threat that the US will no longer support Israel in the same way. To hear that and have all of our bonus content delivered seamlessly to the new members-only podcast feed that you'll receive, sign up to support the show at bestoftheleft.com support, or shoot me an email requesting a financial hardship membership because we don't let a lack of funds stand in the way of hearing more information. Additional episodes of Best of the Left you may want to check out for more context include number 1542, Despair and Violence in Israel's Illiberal and Exclusionary Democracy, that's from February of this year, and it's basically a prequel to today's news discussing the election of the far-right government and warning about the reforms that were planned at the time and are now being implemented. But number 1447, Settler Colonialist Structures Around the World, that's from October 2021, is really interesting because it looks at the dynamics and structures of settler colonialism, including the U.S., Caribbean, Australia, Israel, and Mexico. So it's really useful as a perspective to recognize that what's happening in Israel isn't unique to them or anything intrinsic to the Jewish people, Palestinian people, or their individual or shared histories. It's really just the dynamics of settler colonialism playing themselves out. Again, those were episodes 1542 and 1447. Now to wrap up, I just wanted to make mention of the Israeli Supreme Court hearing for challenges to the new law that is meant to limit Supreme Court power by giving the legislature the ability to vote to ignore Supreme Court rulings. And if that sounds circular, you are right, and that is exactly why this is such a dangerous path for the parliament to have sent them down. The whole idea is that the Supreme Court is supposed to be a check on legislative power, and this is totally normal. But the legislature passed a law to limit the power of the Supreme Court to limit the power of the legislature. So now the Supreme Court will have to decide whether to reject the law as an overreach of legislative power. And then you might be able to guess where that could go. So there should be a ruling by January. It's going to be fascinating no matter what happens. The three basic options for how it could play out are, number one, they allow the law to stand and give the legislature, currently led by a far-right coalition, essentially unchecked power. Number two, they reject the law as unreasonable overreach of legislative power and the previous status quo sort of goes back into place. Or three, they reject the law, but then the legislature votes to ignore the Supreme Court and the country spirals into an abyss of constitutional crisis like we haven't seen in a good long time. Have I mentioned before that 2024 is going to be a hell of a year? 
It feels like something I've said, and that you should be girding yourself now for the onslaught of completely wild news and politics coming our way. Anyway, if, if I hadn't said it before, I've said it now. That is going to be it for today. As always, keep the comments coming in. I would love to hear your thoughts or questions about this or anything else. You can leave us a voicemail or send us a text to 202-999-3991 or simply email me to j at bestofleft.com. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to Dion Clark and Aaron Clayton for their research work for the show and participation in our bonus episodes. Thanks to our transcriptionist trio, Ken, Brian, and LaWindy for their volunteer work helping put our transcripts together. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets, activism segments, graphic designing, webmastering, and bonus show co-hosting. And thanks to those who already support the show by becoming a member or purchasing gift memberships at bestoftheleft.com support. You can join them by signing up today. It would be greatly appreciated. You'll find that link to sign up in the show notes, along with a link to join our Discord community where you can continue the discussion. So, coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you twice weekly, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show, from bestoftheleft.com. Mm-hmm.